Amen. Go ahead and take your seat. And as you're doing that, grab your Bible and open up to the book of Romans chapter 1. And uh, just a quick side note, maybe when you came in, you should have received a sticker. Did we get stickers to people when they came in? You guys get a sticker? Yeah, awesome. Okay. Uh, we normally start our ministry year with that sticker. We, we want to hand those out. Yeah, those theme stickers. And we just encourage you. That's just going to be a constant reminder, we hope, this year for you about what it is we're after what our supreme priority is, what our focus is, and I don't know what you want to do with those. There's a whole lot of things you can do with them, a whole lot of places you can put them. If you want more, take them. We got like hundreds of them. Take them, give them away, do whatever you want. Here's what I like to do. I like to take them and uh, I like to stick them in the back of my Bible. Now, this is a newer Bible, um, so I only got two stickers in here. My, my last Bible was filled with these stickers, and it's been a sweet reminder for me over the years. From time to time, I just flip to the back of my Bible, and I remember the path that God has taken us on through the Scripture to date. And it's just been so sweet to see how God has been faithful to His Word. God is always faithful to His Word. And Paul understands that. And Paul understands that God is not just faithful to His Word, He's faithful to the whole point of the Word of God, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in our text this morning, Paul reminds us of just that, and I want to just read to you two verses. That's all we're going to focus on this morning, but I wish we had two months to unpack the riches and the wealth of all there is here. In fact, we're going to have a whole lot more than that because these really do provide us, in summary fashion, all that Paul is going to unpack for us throughout the remainder of this book. Here's what he writes in verse 16. He says this, "'For I am not ashamed of the gospel.'" For it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Paul's confidence in the power of the gospel the thesis of the book of Romans is revealed right here in two of arguably the most powerful verses in the entire Bible. Again, let me reiterate that here we have in summary the entire argument of the book of Romans and the very heart of Paul's motivation in life and in ministry. In verse 15, as we closed our time last week, we read that Paul was eager to preach the gospel in Rome. And here he tells us why that is exactly, because he is not ashamed of the gospel. John Stott, a famous pastor and author, recounts a comment made by a Scottish theologian named James Stewart as he was preaching through this passage. He said this, he said, there's no sense in declaring that you are not ashamed of something unless you've been tempted to feel ashamed of it. This is good news for us to consider because every one of us, if we're honest with ourselves, has been tempted to feel ashamed of the gospel, have been tempted to feel ashamed of our faith in Jesus have been reluctant to share our faith or to tell people we're Christians, at some point in our lives, this has been true of each one of us. And when we look at the Apostle Paul, we tend to think of Paul as being this invincible, superhuman individual. Yet he was human. Jesus actually anticipated that his followers might one day be ashamed of him. 
He, he spoke to the crowds in Mark 38, eight, excuse me, 838, he said, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Peter confirmed the Lord's prediction of being ashamed of him by denying Jesus three times in one night. Even Paul, in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 3, tells us that he came to the the Corinthians when he first arrived. He came to them in weakness and in fear, he says, and in much trembling. And yet Paul, in truth, was never ashamed of his Savior. He preached the gospel faithfully to everyone, regardless of their title, regardless of their ethnicity, regardless of their religion or background or their condition in life. To him, it made absolutely no difference. He was willing to suffer for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He was beaten, he was stoned, he was left for dead, he was imprisoned. In his life and ministry, he went from town to town and village to village and house to house and person to person. I was reading this past week in Acts chapter 26 where Paul had been imprisoned for preaching the gospel. He stood trial before the mighty rulers of his day, and he stood specifically before King Agrippa, and he proclaimed the gospel, and he proclaimed the the radical testimony of his own life. And when he had finished... He was accused of being out of his mind for saying what he was saying and believing what he was believing. And he looks at King Agrippa. He is asked if in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul's response is so powerful. He says, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. He knew that the message of the cross was foolishness to some and a stumbling block to others. And he knew this because, listen, the message of the gospel, it undermines our sense of self-righteousness and it challenges our self-indulgence. So whenever the gospel is faithfully preached and proclaimed, it it inevitably, listen church, you have to embrace this, it will inevitably arouse opposition. It will often come with contempt. And sometimes it will come with extreme ridicule and even persecution. So how did Paul and how shall we overcome the temptation to be ashamed of the gospel. Well, Paul tells us right here, he tells us every reason we ought to believe so that we too are not ashamed of the gospel, and he begins right here, we are not ashamed of the gospel because there is no greater power. Now, anyone who has sat for a long period of time under the preaching of God's Word has arguably heard many times that the Greek word translated here, power, you'll notice that in verse uh, 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God. You've heard that 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 Greek word is the Greek word uh, dunamos, which is where we get the English word dynamite. And the image that that often conveys for people is the extreme magnitude of power that is found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
the image of this incredibly powerful reality that's packed into this tiny, seemingly tiny little package, and this is the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel, indeed, is incredible power. The explosive power, by the way, of dynamite is actually a very inadequate illustration of the dynamic power of the gospel. Because in reality, there is nothing that can be compared to the power of the gospel. And Paul here tells us that he is not ashamed of this good news because there's no greater power. That's what he wants to highlight for you and for me. That's what he wants to press into the depths of your soul. He wants you to know. He wants you to understand. He wants you to believe. And he wants you to proclaim this reality that there is no greater power than the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, from this single verse, we can actually see the the potency of the gospel. And I want to break it down in four ways. Notice this, first of all, that gospel power is singular. He says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. Notice this, for it is the power. You see, a stick of dynamite is a power, but the gospel here is identified as the power. You know, when we talk of power, we speak of it oftentimes in a variety of different ways, but we speak of it often in how we measure power. And there are different forms of power that are measured in different ways. We measure the power, for example, of a vehicle or an engine with horsepower. We measure electricity by watts, or we measure uh, a TNT explosion by joules, J-O-U-L-E-S, not uh, joules, this is if your diamond ring. But when the Bible speaks of gospel power, it doesn't speak of it in a way that can actually be measured, and this is incredibly important. Notice what Paul says in Ephesians 1.19, it'll be on the screen behind me. He says this, that the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe according to the working of His great might. That's how he describes the power of the gospel. It is immeasurable, there is nothing like it, there is nothing it can be compared to. And you see, while dynamite has the power to level rocks in buildings, consider this, the gospel has the power to level the human heart. It has the power to level pride and rebellion and resistance towards God. There is no other power like it. There is no other power that can do what it can do. And by the way, when you think of the singular nature of the power of the gospel, it should remind you that there's nothing else that's needed. There's nothing else that you can add to the gospel. You you can't look at the gospel and say, well, you know what? Maybe it needs a little bit of this or a little bit of that. Maybe we can help it out in a way. Anything you add to the gospel of Jesus Christ dilutes the power of the gospel. It strips it of the power of the gospel. The gospel doesn't need your help. Gospel power is singular. Why is that? Because secondly, gospel power is supreme. You notice what Paul says here? He says it is the power, notice this, notice this, catch that, of God. The gospel, just consider, this is a really important distinction. The gospel doesn't contain the power of God. Listen, it is the power of God. And it is immeasurable in power because God is immeasurable in His nature. 
I love listening to kids try to wrap their minds around the character and nature of God, don't you? If you've had little kids and you've talked to them about God frequently, you've had the same experience I've had with all of my young children. At some point, my kids will try to grasp the magnitude of God. And so they begin by, by trying to relate God to something else in their life that they think is pretty impressive, right? So they'll, they'll talk about, how, how big is God, Dad? How big is God? Is, like, well, son, you know, daughters, I, I can't really tell you how big God, God is massive in scope and scale. Well, is God as big as our house, right? I've, I've, my kids, as, yep, God's, God's definitely bigger than the house. Is God bigger than a whale, right? Yep, God is, God is much bigger than a whale. Or they try to grasp the power of God, and they'll say things like, well, how strong is God? Like, is, is God as strong as a dinosaur? Yep. And this always blows their mind when I tell, like, is God stronger than you? Well, yeah, actually, he is, yeah. Mind's blown. They can't comprehend. And I'm always impressed, by the way, that my kids somehow think that I'd be stronger than a dinosaur, too, because I'm the last one they go to before God. Christians like to think of God as their superhero. Like us, listen, like us, but with superpowers. But that is a terribly unbiblical portrayal of God's infinite nature. He's not a God who simply possesses our powers, but in endless measure. He is an infinite God who transcends our characteristics all together. Consider what 1 Chronicles 29, 11 through 12 says. Again, it'll be on the screen behind me. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand, catch this, are power and might. And in your hand, it is to make great and to give strength to all. Psalm 21.13 says this, Be exalted, O Lord. Listen to the cry of His people. In your strength, we will sing and praise your power. I love Psalm 63, verse 2. It's one of my favorites in the Psalms. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and your glory. You see, every superhero has a weakness. But God's power is invincible. God's power is an infinite power, which is why we call him omnipotent or all-powerful. The potency of the gospel is none other than the very potency of the power of God. You see, well, what exactly is this power for? Well, gospel power is thirdly saving. That is the purpose of this gospel power. He says in verse 16, for it is the power of God for salvation. For salvation, this is what all of humanity requires, and this is what Paul is going to lay out in the next couple of chapters in the book of Romans. Karl Marx once wrote this, that religion is the sigh of the oppressed creature. He said, it's the heart of a heartless world and the soul of a soulless condition. It is the opium of the people, he said. In other words, you know what he's saying? He said, religion is a crutch. Religion is just simply some fantasy and figment of people's imaginations to help them get through the difficulties, the trials, the pain, and the circumstances of this world. It's something that gives them temporary hope, but that's all it is. It's like a a drug that temporarily eases the pain. 
but doesn't resolve the problems. But you see, when Paul talks about the reality of the gospel, he doesn't look at the gospel as some kind of a a band-aid for the human condition. He sees it as the ultimate solution for the human condition. He sees it as the only hope for humanity, that there is no other message that can do what it can do, that can save a lost sinner, because all of humanity is found in this common condition of brokenness because of sin and alienated from a right relationship with God. And here Paul says, don't you understand that the power of the gospel is for salvation? It is a saving power. Paul doesn't hand us a crutch for our mortal wounds. The gospel is the means by which God frees sinners from bondage and raises people from death in sin to life in Christ. Consider this, church. Listen, the same power that brought the world into existence, the world that we see all around us, yes, in all of its brokenness and all of its fallenness, but still with all of its beauty, with the, the fingerprints of God all over it. It's the same power that is set loose in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul would write in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6, for it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, there's creation, who has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You see, the gospel brings a transformative power to bear upon the lives of lost sinners. The the gospel has the power to confront us in our sin, to convict us of our sin, to convert us from our sin, and then to comfort us by the grace and mercy of God. Salvation is spiritual deliverance from the penalty of sin, from the power of sin in the, the believer's life, and from a future deliverance from the presence of sin at our glorification. Lastly, notice this that gospel power is sufficient. It is sufficient. He says here that it's the power of God for salvation, notice this, to everyone who believes. The Jew first and then to the Greeks. There is in the gospel a universal offer of God's salvation. Paul would write these words in 1 Corinthians 1, 18 and verse 24. He said, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. This is a universal offer to humanity to come and find deliverance from sin. John Murray says this. He says, there is no discrimination arising from race or culture, and there is no obstacle arising from the degradations of sin. In other words, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you're from. It doesn't matter what you've done. And I know that this is a controversial message for the human heart. There are so many people who hear this message, this offer of salvation, and they they say, I've heard people say this to me time and time again, Ian, you have no idea what I've done. You have no idea the life I've lived. You have no idea the mistakes I've made. You have no idea the wreckage I've caused and the, the damage I've done. You have no idea. There's no way. There's no way God can forgive me. There's no way God can rescue me from this. 
But the offer of salvation here is sufficient. Here's what you need to see. It's sufficient to cover everyone and everything. All who come to him can be saved. Here's what you need to understand here. There is no person too far gone. There is no obstacle too great. There is no sin too deep. There's no condition too severe. There's no background too broken. There's no heart too dark. There's no despair too overwhelming. There's no worldly or satanic grip too strong. We are not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Amen? This is our story. If God can save me, don't you feel like this, church? If you don't feel like this, you, you need to look deep into your heart. If God can save me, God can save anybody. If God can rescue me, if God can deliver me, if God can forgive me, then God can save anybody. And man, what hope there is in knowing that the gospel is sufficient. His power alone is sufficient to the Jew first and then to the Greeks. This is Paul's way of saying, not that he gives personal preference to anyone, but this is the historical precedent. The gospel came to the Jews through the Jews, and it goes through the Jews, through Jesus Christ, the Jew, to the world. There's no greater power. And we are not ashamed of the gospel because there is no greater power. Secondly, we're not ashamed of the gospel because there is no greater promise. And Paul here unpacks the power of this gospel for us in verse 17. He says, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So, what exactly is this great promise? Here it is, listen, that in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. In it is contained the very righteousness from God, the very righteousness of God. And you see, to possess this promised righteousness is to be saved, and vice versa. To be saved is to possess this promised righteousness. So what exactly does this phrase mean, the righteousness of God? And I'll be honest with you, um, there have been countless trees uh, cut down and countless amounts of ink spilled to try to answer this question. But I want to kind of summarize it for you or boil it down um, in three ways. I I think this phrase can mean three different things, and I'm going to tell you what I think it predominantly means, but this phrase means several things. Um, First, a righteousness is a divine attribute. It's a divine attribute. And in the Old Testament, as you read through the Scriptures, you see that this refers often to God's faithfulness, to His covenant, to His promises, to His character, that God is always true, that God is perfectly holy, He always does what is right, and He always punishes what is evil. Righteousness of God is often compared to and described by His justice, and namely His retributive justice, that is the the justice that He meets out, that He uses to punish evil. But it's more than that. You see, it's also a divine activity. That is His saving action. If you look through the Scriptures and you see God's righteousness being described, it is often described by His saving divine intervention, whereby He comes to the rescue of God's, of His people. But, but thirdly and finally, it's a divine announcement. It is the declaration 
of the righteous status which God requires if we are to ever stand before Him. One author said it like this, it's that righteousness which His righteousness requires Him to require. In other words, if we are to stand before God, if we are to enter into His presence, if we are to live with Him for eternity, what God requires of us is a righteousness that matches His own righteousness. You have to be perfect in every way. It's a righteousness, however, as we look at Scriptures, the reason it's a divine announcement is because it's a righteousness that only He can accomplish through the atoning sacrifice of the cross, which He then announces in the gospel. It's revealed, it's unveiled in the gospel that this righteousness can now, listen, be applied to other individuals, human beings, to all those who believe. And you see, it's something here that Paul describes as something that must be done for us and cannot be done by us. It is something that cannot be achieved and something that must be instead received. And it's in this final sense primarily that that we should understand the righteousness of God as a declaration of a right standing with God. Theologians through the centuries have called this the, the forensic sense. And the idea here is that God is understood to be the judge before whom all people must one day stand and be examined and give an account. Every one of us is going to stand before God as judge, our lives on full display, nothing hidden, everything in plain view. Everything you've ever done as you stand before God will be revealed, it will be an open book. And here's the question, how then can you be made right with God? But to possess the very righteousness of God that Paul talks about here is the same thing that he describes when he says we must be justified. That is, that we must be declared righteous by God. We must be declared not guilty. And I like to think of it like this, to be justified or to be righteous is to be as if, just as if you've never sinned. Can you imagine that, standing before God, as if you'd never sinned, never offended Him, never rebelled against Him? That's what the gospel does. But it's more than that. You see, justification is not about uh, being able to stand before God just as if we never sinned. It's as if we have to stand before God just as if we've always obeyed. So it's not just like God looks at us and He says, you know what, you need a clean slate. It's not just like in the gospel, God says, you know what, we're going to wipe your slate clean, we're going to clean you up, and now you've got a a kind of fresh ground to start upon. Now get after it and go get your righteousness. Like God treats us like, you know, a little two-year-old. Go ahead and do it, little buddy. You can do it now. It's not what happens. No, in the gospel, not only does He take our sin, He gives us His very righteousness. This has been described as the the great exchange. Our sin, our guilt, our shame is given to Him fully, completely, and in return, He gives us His perfect righteousness. All of His, His active and passive obedience to the Father is credited to our account as if we actually did that. 
Paul's going to lay this out for us, listen, in the next couple of chapters, that, that man has no righteousness on his own. It is impossible for you to have righteousness. There is none righteous, no, not one. For to be righteous means that you are perfectly acceptable to God according to His perfect standard, and you are totally capable of maintaining that on your own. Impossible. Impossible. I mean, just think about trying to maintain, even if God wiped your clay clean today, just, let's just kind of play a little game here, okay? Track with me. Let's pretend right now, okay, clean slate, up to this very second, as if you've never sinned, nothing counted against you, and God said, okay, now go. Be righteous from this point forward. How long do you think you're going to last? Let's try it. Okay, I'm going to time it. Okay, let's go. Serious, let's go. Ready? Go. Don't sin. Politics. Face mask. Kids. Money. I mean, we're done, right? <laughs> All of us in our hearts are probably like, ah, oh, we're fuming already at something. You're like, thanks, Ian. I came to church to be encouraged. I'm leaving angry. <laughs> You're like, you made me do it, Ian. I mean, that's your fault. I would have been fine. No, your heart made you do it. Your heart made you do it. Nobody makes you sin. Your heart is deceitful above all else. It's desperately sick. Every once in a while, people will, will say to me, like, you know what? You know, in an excuse or justification for their sin, they'll say something like, you know what? God knows my heart. God knows my heart as if somehow that gets them off the hook in their disobedience. And I want to look at people like that, and I need to look at people like, you're right, God does know your heart, so you better start repenting. See, God in the gospel does not just wipe your slate clean, He credits His righteousness to you, He imputes it to you, the very righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5, 21 on the screen behind me. Listen, listen, you've got to hear these words. For our sake, He made Him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become, look at it, look at it, the righteousness of God. And this gift comes, he says here, only by believing, only by faith. From faith to faith, he says. In other words, we will never have a righteousness on our own. From first to last, from beginning to end, it is all about, it is only from faith in the Lord Jesus Christ that is itself a gift of God's grace. Paul says it like this in Philippians 3, verse 9. On the screen again behind me, he says, and to be found in him, not having, look at this, a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, that comes from working for it, that comes from my own sort of obedience, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. And then he bolsters this idea, again, just keep in mind, what he's arguing here is this, that the righteousness that you need is something you can't earn, you can't produce for yourself, and it comes only through faith, and it is given by God, and he says, this has always been the way people are saved, nobody has ever worked their way into my good grace, nobody has ever been acceptable enough to earn my favor and kindness. And to demonstrate that, he goes back into the Old Testament and he quotes from the book of Habakkuk 2 verse 4, and he says this, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. These words from Habakkuk 2 verse 4 have already been quoted by Paul 
in the New Testament. He quotes them in Galatians 3 verse 11, and there he is using them to teach people again that people are justified by faith and not through, through their works, not through the law. The author of Hebrews quotes them in Hebrews 10.38 to encourage the readers of this epistle who are suffering for the sake of the gospel, who are losing much for the sake of Christ, and he encourages them with this verse to press on, to not lose heart. In, in Hebrew, the Hebrew language, faith means steadfastness or fidelity. And in the Habakkuk passage, this steadfastness or fidelity is based on a firm belief in God in His Word. And it is a firm belief that Paul understands by this term. He is saying that, that, that faith is about a firm belief in the very promises of God, in the very promise of the gospel. We need to kind of get our bearings with the context of Habakkuk. You see, God's statement was, was intended to be a, a statement of comfort to Habakkuk. Habakkuk was a prophet of God who, who was prophesying um, during the time between the two exiles of the northern and southern kingdoms of, of Israel and Judah. During this time, he was looking around him and he was seeing he was seeing an immense amount of sin in God's people. He was watching them live foolishly and sinfully and rebelliously. He was at his wit's end with God for allowing God's people to continue to live in sin. And then God actually comes to him and says, listen, I'm going to judge my people. I'm going to bring the Babylonians to punish Israel. And that just infuriated Habakkuk all the more. He's like, God, what's the deal? These people are sinning and they're not being punished. And then you're going to punish them with an even more sinful and wicked people. It might be said that Habakkuk was embarrassed, that he was ashamed of God's inaction and God's choices and decisions. But Habakkuk had received the divine assurance that wickedness, listen, would not triumph indefinitely. That righteousness would ultimately be vindicated and that the earth, as he says in, in chapter 2, verse 4, the earth would be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. God holds out this promise to Habakkuk and he says, you need to cling to this. You need to trust me. And this vision might be slow in being realized, but it would certainly be fulfilled. You see, God is not blind to the condition of His people, church. Listen, He's not blind to your personal condition. He's not blind to the condition of the church in this culture, in society, in the world at large. He's not blind. He sees it all. And God has not forgotten His covenant promises to His people. But meanwhile, even in the mess of this world, and when it seems like God isn't doing anything to rescue His people and to make wrongs right, listen, He is told here that the righteous would endure to the end, directing their lives by loyalty to God that is inspired by faith in His promise. There's nothing you can do to fix the situation, Habakkuk. You will have to live by faith and not by sight until what I have written is accomplished. And so Paul reaches back into Habakkuk and he says, listen, church, this is the paradigm for the Christian life. And this even pushes us all the way back to Abraham who had to do the same thing. Circumstances looked bleak. Circumstances looked hopeless and impossible. And he says, trust me. Trust the promises I made to you, Abraham. And what does Paul tell us in Galatians? That Abraham believed in the promise of God. He believed in the promises of the gospel, and it was counted to him as righteousness. 
you're righteous because of faith, not works. And that is evidenced in a life of faith that unashamedly endures. And I want to close with three final applications here. And this is related to our faith. And this is, this is so important to understand. You see, faith is so critical to understanding the power of the gospel in your life. You need to understand this, first of all. Faith in the gospel is our great fix. As God told Habakkuk, God says to us today, you can't fix your problem. You can't resolve the key issue of your life. And it's not your circumstances, it's your heart. You can't do it. But by faith, the righteous shall live. By faith, you can be made righteous and have true life. Faith is the key to a relationship with God. We need our sins and our debt forgiven. We need perfect obedience that we could never attain. Jesus takes our sin and He imputes to us His perfect righteousness. It's never about fixing ourselves, loved ones. It's only about believing that Jesus Christ alone in the gospel can fix us and make us right. Only Jesus can fix our broken relationship with our Father and our Creator. And if you here today are broken and you know it, if you know you right now, you're not a follower of Christ and you are spiritually alienated from God and you are sensing right now the depths of your own sin, you are invited to believe upon the name of, the, of Jesus Christ. You are invited this morning to embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ that has the power right now in this moment to fix you from the inside out, to make you right with God, to take away all of your sins and to give you a perfect righteousness that you did not not earn and did not deserve, but God freely gives to you by His grace. Repent of your sin. Repent of your sin and find, find that the righteous indeed shall live by faith. Secondly, faith in the gospel is our great foundation. Church, if you are saved, here's what you need to see in this. Faith is the foundation upon which our lives are built. From faith to faith, he says, it tells us that it begins with an absolute reliance upon God, and it continues with an absolute reliance upon God. You are not just saved by faith, you are sanctified by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. Like Habakkuk, in, in times of trouble and hardship and confusion, we struggle to trust God because we don't see Him at work. We don't feel like He hears us or that He's answering our prayers. And in those moments, we are reminded that faith is our firm foundation. The promises of God are true, and all the, the promises of God find their yes and amen in Jesus Christ. We don't put our faith in our money, in our possessions. We don't put our faith in our own ability, in our own activity. We don't simply muscle our way through the Christian life. We live by faith. Everything else we build upon is sinking sand, but the promise of the gospel is a sure and steady foundation. Finally, faith in the gospel is our great future. This is so important. We're often so fixated on how the gospel fixes our past and maybe is supposed to work in our present, but we forget about how the gospel secures our future. Like Habakkuk, who looked around the situation and, and he thought it was hopeless. Maybe like the church in Paul's day, maybe like Paul at points in his life when he was being ridiculed and mocked and beaten and stoned and left for dead and on trial and imprisoned. 
maybe like you and me who will face mocking and scorn and ridicule if we are truly not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We will often maybe look around and wonder, God, where are you? How long, O Lord? And Paul reminds us that the righteous shall live by faith. We have not yet seen the fulfillment of all things, church. We have not yet seen the fulfillment of the promises that are yet to be fulfilled in Christ. We still see sorrow. We still experience suffering and sin and death in this world and in this life. We have not yet seen the perfection of our bodies. And so we cry out like Habakkuk, God, what is going on? When will you come and make all of this right? And God says, wait. And while you wait and while you endure, the righteous shall live by faith. This is not the end of the story. One day soon, Jesus is returning. He has guaranteed our future so that we can endure anything in the present. Our future is secure in His invincible grip. Our eternal life is ours already, yes, in Christ Jesus, but it is not yet. So the righteous shall live by faith. So let us with Paul declare the theme of this letter as the anthem of our lives and the anthem of our church that we are not ashamed of the gospel for there are no greater powers and there is no greater promise. For it, the gospel of Jesus Christ, is the power of God unto salvation for all, for everyone who believes, to the Jew and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Father, we pray that you would strengthen us, God, with the power of the gospel. God, that you would fill us with hope and courage. Lord, that you would make us a people who, God, are so indebted to you, who so love you for how you have first loved us, that, God, we are not ashamed of the gospel. God, fill us now with faith to believe the promises of the gospel. Fill us now with faith, Lord, to grasp the power of the gospel. And Lord, may, may the gospel continue to transform us. And God, may we give you all the praise and all the glory for all that you have done. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.